0: Your uh, Bible with you, how about if you'd open it up to the very first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 24. Chapter 24 is uh, the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And guess what? We're going to do the whole chapter. See a little sparkle in my eye? It's 67 verses. Now, I've never done 67 verses before in one setting like this. And before you think, oh, are you kidding me? It's going to be like 3 in the afternoon. No, it won't be. We're going to actually do it in a fairly fast version, um, but that will require you to follow along fairly well. So if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along there. You'll be following along up on the screen as well. The verses will be up there. But I want to show you three things first that we're going to be focusing on over the next 40 days. Three things that will be very important to us as we move through this period of time, and you'll see how it relates to this passage this morning. First of all, the first thing you're going to be hearing about, obviously, is prayer. And and what prayer is specifically, it's seeking God's wisdom and His will. And we talked about this last week when we looked at the Lord's Prayer. It's it's all about getting God's will done on earth, not about getting Mark's will done in heaven or getting your will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done done on earth, just as His will is done in heaven. That's why the Lord's Prayer goes the way that it does. And our priority out of that is to put God first in every decision. In everything that we make a decision about, we put God first. And so the purpose in that is that we would seize those opportunities that God brings our way. Because we want to be found faithful as stewards. If God's bringing something our way, we want to respond to it and not just be bystanders and stand back, but we want to respond. So that's going to require us to pray in specifics, just like the seven specifics I gave you. Because our God answers in specifics. Pray believing God for big things. That requires me to check all of my requests by one overarching concern that comes from John fifteen seven. John fifteen seven says that if I abide in Christ and his words abide in me, then I can ask whatever I wish. Now, some people would look at that and say, What well, that sounds like Jesus is like the genie in the lamp, and you start rubbing the lamp. But well, that's not what that passage is saying. It's saying if I abide in Christ, meaning if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and His words, God's word abides in me, then my heart desires are going to be God's heart desires. If that's what I'm reflecting is God's Word, and then I can ask whatever I wish. Because God says, if your Word's in me, then you're thinking like I'm thinking. So that requires a question. Am I abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? What does that look like? Well, you want to make sure that you never separate prayer from the Word of God. The two go hand in hand. They have to walk together. I've seen professing Christians disobey God and then try and justify it by saying, well, I prayed about it, and I felt that it was okay. Now, you probably have known people that have done that very same thing. They go on their feelings rather than on God's word. So never separate prayer from God's word because your actions always have to be consistent with the word of God. Some people look at prayer as a way of bending God's will, shaping his thinking, trying to get him to think like we think, and they attempt to resolve some, some of the tension by modifying God's truth. We're not going to get into that today. We'll save that for next week. There is a tension, though, when we think of our prayer and God's will, because this tension exists when we know that God is sovereign, but yet he's given us free will. God is sovereign, yet he's given us choice. God is sovereign, but he tells us to pray. A very interesting tension between those two, and especially when it goes even deeper, when James reminds us that if we pray fervently, it accomplishes a great deal. As a matter of fact, it says this, James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That that word effective is energetic. It means passionate. I'm really passionate about this. I can affect much. Well, if I'm passionate about the things of God. Now, in my biblical understanding, there's this tension between God's will and man's will, and God says we're supposed to press into him So God's sovereign, right? He reigns, right? Okay, God's sovereign, He reigns, yet the Bible is equally explicit about saying that we're supposed to press into Him in prayer, asking for Him to do things. Sometimes we would say, how is God's sovereignty related to us praying for His will to be done? Because if He's sovereign, isn't His will gonna be done anyway? If he's sovereign and he controls everything, isn't his will ultimately going to be done? Does our will override his will? Is that what's happening? This is a great puzzle. It's a real paradox. Rather than me trying to sum it up, I'm going to share a, a quote with you from John MacArthur before we move into Genesis 24. Let me show it to you on the screen. He says it this way. If man were not able to make his own choices, God's commands would be futile and meaningless and his punishments cruel and unjust. If God did not act in response to prayer, Jesus' teaching and prayer would also be futile and meaningless. Our responsibility is not to solve the dilemma, but to believe and act on God's truths. That's very deep. That's very accurate. Okay, let's move forward into Genesis 24 with that framework in our mind. we got a real-life story here. Abraham, we're going to revisit his life story. He's very deliberate to advance the work of God and God's purposes. So let's look at this adventure through the lens of prayer and see what happens in this man's life. Genesis 24-1 says this, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. So right away we see that this adventure is going to be a mission. This guy's being set out on something very explicit. He's going to go look for a wife for his boss for his boss's son. Now, here's the dilemma. Abraham is asking God to do something that may not necessarily be in keeping with another person's desires. There's this girl someplace, this fictitious person out there, whom he believes is a match for his son, and he's sending his servant off to find her. But what if she doesn't want to come? Well, there's a logical question the servant asked in verse 5. The servant said to him, "'Suppose the woman is not willing "'to follow me to this land.'" Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. You see the dilemma and the tension? Now Abraham has been abiding in God's word. He's been abiding in God. God has been telling him, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I want to make you into thousands, millions of people. So he's abiding. He's hearing from God. He knows God's word and what God says. So he has this response in verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and swore to me saying, "To your descendants I will give this land; he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son for my son from there." Now understand, Abraham's not being hard-headed. He's just not willing to bend on the things of God. He knows what God said, and he's not going to deviate from that. So the, the servant realizes, well, I can't surrender on that one. So I mean, I can't have my way. So I surrender. So look at with me at verse eight. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath. Only do not take my son back there. Now, in verse nine, we're told that the servant does this really awkward thing. He takes the oath uh, in, the, in, in this biblical period of time to take an oath like this. Understand. This is kind of weird to us in 2013. It would have been weird to me in 2012 and 2011 and 2010. But men at this period of time wore long robes, you know, clo- uh, cloaks and tunics and things like that. And what Abraham is telling him to do is put your hand on the inside thigh of my leg all the way up at the top. How weird is that? Okay. I mean, am just being honest with you. Okay, Why? Because the oath that he's taking is representative of future generations. And from Abraham's loins come the future generations. The oath is made so serious and so solemn that they actually require a contact of body parts to say, I will carry out what you're calling me to do. Now, as a result of taking the oath, he gets to go to the garage and pick out a line of sports cars to take and go look for this girl. Go with me to verse 10. It says, The servant took ten camels from the camels of his masters and set out with a variety of good things of his masters in his hand, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. That's very significant because Nahor is Abraham's brother. That means he's got family living in the city of Mesopotamia, and he's going on this adventure with ten camels. Now, this is a caravan. So that means he's got attendants going with him. He's got guards, people who will go along with him because you can't take care of 10 camels by yourself, nor would you need that many unless you had guards with you. So he's got a lot of camels, and this is the equivalent of going to the garage and picking out your selection of Hummers, whatever you think you need for a long-distance trip because he's got a huge journey. Now, camels only can travel 20 miles a day. And so that means this guy's got a 25-day journey minimum ahead of him to go 500 miles all the way to what we know as the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent, what makes up the area of Iran and Iraq today to this area of Mesopotamia. And ladies, notice in verse 10 it says he picked out a variety of good things. Does that speak to you? What do you think that is? Jewels, diamonds, yeah, somebody's thinking really big. <laughs> okay, it's jewels, it's perfumes, spices. This guy speaks women. He, he knows their language. And he says, I, I'm going to have some of these good things. I want some bling with me. So go with me to verse 11. We find him 500 miles later. He's all the way in Mesopotamia. Verse 11 says, He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time the time when women go out to draw water. What I want you to notice next is how specifically this man prays. Before he does anything else, he comes before God and he's acknowledging God's sovereign role over everything. Verse 12, he says, "'O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, "'please grant me success today "'and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. "'Behold, I am standing by the spring "'and the daughters of the men of the city "'are coming to draw water.'" He's praying the exact same way that I pray. When I'm going into an awkward situation and I'm not sure what God's going to accomplish there, I usually will start out this way by saying, God, will you go before me? I'm here in this place. Will you go ahead of me and prepare the hearts of the people whom I'm going to talk to? Just go before me, Father. Now, do you notice in verse 13, he said, Behold, I'm standing by the spring. Does God know that he's standing by the spring? I mean, he's in prayer, right? So he's telling God that he's standing by the spring. Does, does God know that the daughters are coming to draw water? Yes. Well, that's obvious. God knows these things. So he's not informing God, is he? What's he doing? He's declaring what he's done, his action. He's saying, I've come here. I've made this journey. I'm in the right place. I'm here at the right time. Please bless my action. Why? Because I'm doing this in keeping with your will what you want to accomplish. I'm just trying to carry out your actions. So is this man trying to bend God's will? Or is he trying to be in keeping with God's will? He's trying to be in keeping with God's will. What he's saying is, God, I want you to increase your activity. See, when you and I go before the Father and we say, Not my will, but your be done, your will be done, what we're really doing is we're yielding our own will. Whatever the outcome, that's why it's an adventure. Because you're not sure what the outcome is going to be. God is sure. And he's the one that says, I want to accomplish my will. When you come before God that way, that pleases God. You're praying like Jesus prays. You're praying just like the model that he gave us in Scripture. Let's go forward because he really cranks it up now to verse 14. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar. Remember, he's still praying. Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camel also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Is that specific enough to you? That's pretty specific prayer, isn't it? I was talking with Gary about this earlier this week, and he said, this is like an ancient version of E eHarmony. Look, look at the 29 dimensions of love here, okay? First of all, she must be camel friendly. Okay, you got that in your head? And she must be a virgin. And and she must be beautiful. And she must be outgoing. And she must be a hard worker. How hard is it to water 10 camels? I mean, they can hold a lot of water. This girl's a worker. She must be of the right family line. She must have a servant heart. Must be willing to travel. Here's the big one. She must be the one whom you have appointed Wow, you talk about the proverbial needle in a haystack. This guy has really drawn the line tight. Go with me to verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. How fast does that answer? Wow. Is God just waiting to answer prayers that are in keeping with his will? God was ready to act. And in the case of this man, it's a definite yes because his request is in keeping with God's will. God had already told Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to make you a great nation. So you need a wife for Isaac. This is in keeping with God's will. So he's responding that way. Now I'm guessing if you could get an EKG on the servant's heart at this point, you'd be seeing this. The needles would be going off the charts because his heart's got to be racing. This guy is excited. Is this the one? Go forward with me now to verse 17. The servant ran to meet her. Yeah, I'm guessing. The servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, he doesn't know at this point who she is. He doesn't know about her family line. I'm thinking he's doing what you and I would be doing. If you're thirsty, you've just come off the desert, you're ready for a drink You're just like guzzling it with your eyes closed, and in his case, his eyes are wide open because he's like, are you for real? I can't believe this is happening. He's going to be keeping his eyes on her. Now go with me to verse 19. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Bam! See, that's code. God has just shown himself powerful in your life. What are you going to do with it? How do you respond when God has just answered your request? Do you become a bystander? Do you check out and say, oh, man, okay, I'm out of here now. That, that, that's just getting into dangerous territory. Or do you do what he did? Go with me next to verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all ten, remember, ten of his camels, Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence. Yeah, I'm guessing to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. What's he doing? He's discerning. He's discerning. He's discerning. What does that require? That requires waiting. That requires watching. Why? Because he's not convinced. He doesn't take the work of God lightly. Now, we would look at this and we'd say, we have 2,000 years of history to look back on. We'd say, of course, this is serious. This is the one. But he doesn't have that benefit. He's living in it, in the midst of it, just like you are, day in and day out, trying to discern the will of God. So we'll give him extra credit for being thorough and systematic. This guy is watching. Go with me to verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing 10 shekels in gold, about to put a ring on it, and said, verse 23, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? When the New York Stock Exchange closed on Friday, gold was selling for $1,329 an ounce. He's just given her 36.7 ounces of gold, $49,128 just as a door prize for being the right girl in the right place at the right time. How rich is Abraham that he was able to reach into the warehouse and grab a handful, a variety of good things to take along with him just to draw this girl in? Now, hospitality, understand, is the first law of the Middle East. And so I'm thinking in her case, it wasn't just the jewelry that caused her to respond the way that you're about to see because they're always very hospital, would always go out of their way, but the jewelry certainly had an effect. Can you imagine in the evening sun, ladies, that gold sparkling you've just been given, 36.7 ounces? That's a pretty serious gift. Go with me to verse 24. She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. She has just told him that her grandpa is Nahor, Abraham's brother. How did he pray? God, if it is your will, bring me to my master's household and show me the one that you have appointed. Out of all the people that he could have met, the first one coming to the well is the one that God has appointed. He prayed in specifics. God answered in specifics. You know what he can do now? He can praise God in specifics. There's a lesson for us here. Look with me at verse 26. Then the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness. And his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Who gets the glory here? God. Whose will is accomplished? God. How do we worship and pray best based on what we learned last week? When we're praising God for who he is, he's holy. Holy is your name your kingdom come, that he's a ruler, that he's sovereign. That's what the servant's doing here. He's declaring how great God is, his sovereign work, and that he's met the needs. Specific praise for specific answers. Let me share with you something that happened in the life of our church in the last week. Uh, A family who attends here um, has uh, two daughters, and their daughters are both in the school systems here in, in the Lansing area. Um, last April or May, they approached me and said, we would like for you to fill out a pastor recommendation form. We believe we need to transfer our daughter out of the public school that she's in into uh, the Christian school here in town. And I began talking to them about why, and they said, our daughter has been bullied and bullied and bullied to the point where she can't take it anymore. She believes she's the only Christian young lady in her class And the other girls have identified her and called her out, and they have become her enemies to the point where they humiliate her. The mom said that she received seven to ten phone calls a week, every week last year during the school year, with her daughter weeping. Mom, please come pick me up. So they hit the end of the school year convinced that they were supposed to move on. So they asked me to fill out the pastor recommendation form, and I did, and they took it to the school. They toured the school, met with the advisors of the school, and had a great experience, but came away with no peace in their heart, came away with a sense of conviction that maybe this is not God's will, and we're running from something we shouldn't be running from. Maybe he wants to use us. So with their daughter's agreement, they began praying, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to respond within hours they got a call from another mom who's in the exact same school system with a daughter in the same grade who said i think your daughter is a christian my daughter is too and she needs a friend desperately would your daughter come alongside my daughter could they be sisters in christ together at least two could stand together so they said we'll pray We'll pray over the course of the summer what God would have us to do. Got to the middle of the summer and they became convinced that God wanted them to stay in the school system, to be a light in a dark place where she was at in her own classroom and in her greater class. So they hit the first day of the school year this year. Day after Labor Day, Michigan schools start up at that time. Can you bet there was some anxiety for that young lady going back into the school again? Knowing what she was walking into. She goes in, finds her locker, gets her room material set up, only to walk out in the hallway and run into her number one enemy, the one who had belligerently shot her down the most. And that young lady walked up to her and said to her, I want to confess to you, I have been incredibly mean to you. Would you forgive me? My heart hurts over the way that I've treated you. I know that we probably can't be friends because of how I treated you in the past. Can we at least be acquaintances and get along together? Obviously, this girl extended forgiveness to her and they began working on the relationship. I told them when they shared this story with me that there's a passage in Proverbs in which God says, When a man's ways pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That promise isn't just enough because God took it one notch further. That young lady who's part of our church showed up here for youth group last Sunday evening. And remarkably, when she walked in the door, to her surprise, she discovered that her number one enemy, now her friend, was here for youth group last week. Somebody had invited her. When we pray in specifics, God answers exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. He goes before us. Specific praise for specific answers. Let's go forward because we find in verse 28, this young girl's really excited and she sprints for home. It says in verse 28, then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Dun, dun, dun. Do you know the story of Laban? you understand what a cruel kind of a guy he is? And in the story of Laban unfolds later. We're not going to get into it today, but he plays quite a role in the story of Scripture. As of yet, the family does not know why the servant is there. It's not been explained to them. They don't have an understanding. But they're about to find out. They're about to find out that he's come from Abraham, and he's going to tell them Abraham has become great, absolutely abounding in wealth. Now for the servant, his part, nothing interferes with his work. I want you to look at the next verse because even food, even the simplest issue, he says in verse 33, but when the food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on. This is Laban speaking and now transferring to the servant. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. So he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. He begins retelling the entire journey. We're not going to go into that. We're going to skip forward. But just know this. What he's essentially saying is Isaac has become sole heir of Abraham Incorporated. He gets it all. It's all coming his way. And he says, I began praying about if this was the right girl. And before I finished pouring out my heart, Becky comes around the corner. Look with me at verse 48. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. This man entered into the conversation absolutely convinced that she's the right one. All the criteria had been met. All the alignments have come together. But in this case, he cannot force the issue. See, what I talked about in the very beginning, Abraham said, you're going to go do this, but is he imposing his will on another person? It may not be that person's desires. The servants come to the conversation confident she's the one. What do you do in that situation? He's completely left the outcome to the direction of God's activity. Completely. Only God can move in the heart of the young lady. Only God can go before him and before Abraham to prepare the way. So this is the next part, verse 49. So now, if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, the matter comes from the Lord. So we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son. As the Lord has spoken, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. Now, up to this point, the servant's the one that's been taking the vows. The servant's the one that's been eating camel dust 500 miles. The servant is the one who's been doing all the searching. But ultimately, it's all God. It's all His timing, how He brings it together. So, to the point that even the Labans of this world can say, it's of the Lord. See, even the pagans can recognize when God is active. When God is at work, it's obvious. You can see it. So they acknowledge God has prepared the way. Go forward with me into verse 53. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And in the Middle East, it would have been done this way. Bring forward the gifts. I'm thinking I want to post this verse on the front of my house the next time somebody wants to date my daughters. Bring forth the gifts. (laughs) Yeah, it's scriptural. In those days, when you lost your daughter or you lost your son and they went and relocated, you lost your workers, you lost the ones who would bring water to your house the ones who would take care of your animals and your livestock. So it was common to compensate. That's what you see going on there. Verse 54, Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. So he's in charge of the situation, but he's saying, I have to go. Don't delay me. I'm on this mission from God. Plus, i got another 500 miles to go back to get back to Abraham. Verse 57, And they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. What if she doesn't want to go? What do you do in that situation? Every one of us face a situation like this. It is a critical moment in our walk with God. It's called the crisis of belief. Do I really believe that God called me to this moment? Is it really God that orchestrated all these things? Everything points to God activity, but until all the blockades are removed, what do you do? You wait. You wait. You wait. It doesn't sound theologically profound, does it? Doesn't sound very deep. But we're told those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Wait upon God. Allow him to do what he's doing because we can't force it. This girl still has to consent. He doesn't have to wait long. Verse 58, Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. I want you to skip over to verse 61. It says, then Rebecca arose with her maids and they mounted the camels and followed the man. The reason I wanted you to skip over verse 60 is because I want to pay careful attention to a detail item. It's going to feel like a rabbit trail for just a minute. But it's a beautiful parallel to where we're at in 2013. Look with me at verse 60 on the screen. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. To possess the gate meant to conquer the enemy. Now, in Rebecca's case, she did become the mother of thousands and ten thousands because every Jew alive on planet Earth today came from Rebecca through her line, from Abraham down to Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, the, the parents, the grandparents, the great-great-grandparents of the Jews alive today. But in God's plan... There's a blessing that's just been given here that is the exact same blessing that was given years before that these people could not possibly have known about. Look with me up on the screen at God talking to Abraham in Genesis 22. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Same blessing. Same blessing repeated again in the life of Isaac. When these people call for thousands, they're asking for something that only God can do beyond their wildest imagination, beyond anything that they can even think of. But when they speak of possessing the gate, they're ultimately ultimately asking for something that only God can orchestrate when he brings his kingdom. How do I know that? Because Jesus said the exact same thing. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 16, 8. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who's the enemy, church? Satan. Hell is representative of the forces of Satan. The gates of the enemy were conquered by Jesus Christ, they cannot prevail against the church. It's not possible. So you're seeing God's blessing being played out Old Testament to New Testament. Just a rabbit trail for a minute, but understand the intricacy by which God weaves his word together. Let's go forward because we need to finish the story. These guys have a whole month ahead of them on the journey and Isaac enters the scene just as his eyes lift up, her eyes lift up and they meet each other. Verse 63 says this, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening and he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, camels were coming And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Understand, it was customary for young women at that time, especially in the presence of their betrothed, to jump off the camel, to not be seen riding. That's why she does this. Verse 65, she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is the hunk you are going to marry. He is my master, and he's rich. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. I love that verse because that means he begins before anything else retelling the entire journey. Abraham came to me, made me put my hand there, and he told me to go all the way over there, took all his camels, I had to stand outside the well, and I talked to this rotten guy by the name of Laban, and I came all the way back. And I'm thinking at this point, Isaac's saying, yeah, 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 that's all great. What does she look like? She's got the veil on, and he's trying to see through the veil. Is this girl beautiful? I want to know. We're told in verse 67, there's no long engagement here. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. doesn't say that he took off her veil, and he flipped, said, wow. It just tells us that he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That means there's a woman in his life again. Mom's gone. And God's plan is being brought together that Isaac and Rebecca would meet. Can you imagine the servant standing by? He's just grinning from ear to ear because God used him in this mission to play a role to accomplish his will. He gets the joy of seeing God's will being carried out. And this young woman gets to step in the steps of her new father in law, Abraham. She's left her homeland. She's come to a new place. She's now on the adventure. She gets to be part of this great line of people. And you might look at this and say, How do I get God to answer my prayers that way? How do I get God to show up powerful in my life in that way? So, rhetorical question Are you thorough in seeking God's will? Are you abiding in Christ? Is his word abiding in you? Are you thorough in seeking God's will? Just to close, compare the Lord's Prayer with the servant's prayer. Jesus started out this way Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Servant's Prayer, may she be the one whom you have appointed, in verse 14 who you have appointed. I want your purposes. So as we move forward, church, understand there are these three things you're gonna hear constantly from me over the next 40 days. Prayer, seeking his wisdom and his will, getting God's will done on earth. That's our priority. Number two, priority, putting God first in every decision. Number three, purposes, that we would seize the opportunities that God brings our way. Because we need to pray specifically, we'll be able to praise him specifically because our God answers in specifics. And let's believe God for big things beyond what we can ask or imagine. Can we do that together? Okay, let's pray, church. God, we know that you are intimately interested in all the details of our life. There is no person here in the sound of my voice whose life is not important to you. And every intimate detail of their life is important to you. Father, you orchestrate things in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. We just declare that as truth. But we recognize because that is true, we have a responsibility to come before you. Father, as we step into this adventure, and we really do believe it is that, because we believe that you're going to take us places we wouldn't go on our own, And you're going to show us things we would never imagine to see on our own. We just ask that you would reveal yourself. Show us your glory as we sang, Father. Show us your power. Continue to expand your church, but in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. God, increase your kingdom here on earth. And when you want to, when the time is right, may your kingdom come. And may we live to see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lifetime. Father, we declare all of this because of the one who redeemed us, the living King, the King of kings, the one by whom we can know relationship with you, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.